0: This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. I think we all accept as a given that when you begin a new, important new stage in your life, you need to prepare for it. For example, people who are entering military service, they don't just show up, they go through basic training. They have to uh, get to a certain state of readiness physically, all sorts of skills they have to learn. But you don't start, you start with basic training, anywhere from seven to 13 weeks for the Marines. If you enter the religious life, let's say a nun or a monk in the Catholic Church or the Eastern Orthodox Church, they have something called a novitiate. You just don't show up and say, I'm here. If you come, you have to really have a lot you have to learn. You have to be spiritually trained for that moment, anywhere from one to three years. If you are in a a specialized trade like a carpenter or a plumber, we have apprenticeships, right? We go through regular special mentor type of training to get the skills we need. So we have the idea that when you do something, you're entering to something really important and new in your life, you need training. Now I ask you, what could be more important than our baptism, our birth into Jesus? So the church now normally, historically, we baptized at the Easter vigil. So Lent was basic training. It was the special time where we prepared people to be baptized. And what we have, we have a three-year cycle as Anglicans. You know, we read different readings each year over a three-year period. And I love this year, which is year A, because what the church did is one of the things they did to prepare people for baptism is, you know, Lent always begins with the first Sunday is Jesus in in the desert being tempted. And the last Sunday is always Palm Sunday, but what about the four Sundays in between? The church since the sixth century said, you know, the best way to prepare people is in the assembly to read some episodes from the Gospel of John, some encounters. Jesus has these wonderful dialogues in the Gospel of John, that this was a way to get people ready for what to expect now that you're going to be baptized. What should I expect? Now, some questions for us today is, first of all, I imagine most of us here are either going to be baptized at the Easter Vigil or have already been baptized and are preparing to renew our baptismal vows. So, for the, last, for, for the last three weeks, we've talked about the story of Nicodemus, the encounter of Nicodemus with Jesus. We talked about Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well, and we talked about Jesus healing a man born blind. So, the first thing we'll do is let's look back and say, what were the lessons we were supposed to have picked up from that as we prepare to renew our baptismal vows or to be baptized? And then today, we get to the pinnacle. We have the seventh sign, and there are the seven signs of John's gospel, the raising of Lazarus. So, our question then will be is, what's the lesson I take from that passage, today's gospel passage? And also, we say, well, I know he raised Lazarus. How does that possibly affect my life as a Christian? How does that change everything about how I live? Let's look at that. First of all, let's look at our first three lessons. What have we pulled away from those? We started out getting ready for baptism by saying, folks, in the ancient world, they had different philosophies and things. You could become a Stoic or a Platonist, right? You could become a follower of Aristotle. There were different philosophies you could follow. And people understood it would be neat. You'd be changing your life, trying to improve. And people might be tempted to think maybe becoming a Christian is sort of like that. And so our first gospel we have is not at all. Remember, we have the story of Jesus meets Nicodemus. And one thing in John's gospel is we're always playing with the fact that Christ is spiritual. But because we're not, we tend to take things at a very literal level. So he starts out to tell us that this is not like a philosophy. This is radically different. What happens? Well, in Greek, you know, if you've been in a band, you know that if you uh, play uh, a piece and they say oh, let's do that again, they'll say, from the top. So sometimes we use the term from the top to mean hey, let's do it again. Well, in Greek, one of the words for again literally means from above, from the top. So in our Bibles, we often translate, you know, you have to be born again. What Jesus literally says is you have to be born from above. And, of course, Nicodemus, being like all of us, is not spiritual, so he's saying, born again? How is that possible? You can't go back into the womb. And Jesus' reply was, no, you don't understand. That wouldn't do you any good. You'd still be in the same position. I'm not talking being born again. I'm talking about being born differently, fundamentally in a different way, not just born in the regular human way, but born from above, an act of God. This is radical. This isn't just picking up a new philosophy, a new teacher. So what would that look like? Okay, so we know that this is going to be radical. This is, if you're here for a new philosophy, we're telling you, you're in the wrong place. If you're going to be a Christian. Well, the next thing with the Samaritan woman, again, Jesus uses regular language for something very spiritual. You know, if you've seen the old Westerns they had, like in the 50s and 60s, one of the classic uh, tropes was, You come in the desert to a pool of water, and you're wondering about it. Is it safe to drink? And if you see a skull of a water buffalo there or something, you realize, maybe this isn't a good idea. So what you're looking for is, how do I know water is safe to drink? In the ancient world, the number one way was that it was running water. That means it's water in something like a stream or a river, or it was, in a pool that is, is spring-fed. You know, it's actually new, renewed water. It's not just sitting there and stagnating. Well, in Greek, the word living water, same, they use the same thing in Aramaic and Hebrew. Living water simply meant moving water. You know, something that comes up in a spring or something that moves, it's not stagnant. The opposite of stagnant. So Jesus says, you know, if you knew enough to ask me, I could give you living water, meaning water that actually gives life. I mean, life itself. And she takes it literally. Running water, that'd be great. Have a bucket? So she doesn't get it. So Jesus tells us what that is. He says, the water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He said, here's the water I'm talking about. It won't be in a well next to you where you need a bucket. It'll be inside you The water you need for life will be inside you, just bubbling up, never ending. It's inexhaustible. Then he even makes it clearer three chapters later. Jesus says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit. So he says what's going to change your life, what it means to be born from above, is you will actually have within you the very life of God. Now, how does that change everything? Well, you know the answer if you've ever been to a Starbucks with a computer. Think of the fights that break out over plugs. You're trying to get a plug to plug in the computer. Why? Because everybody's computer has a battery. But some batteries are a lot more successful than others. But no matter what battery you have, all batteries will run out of energy. They're derivative. The minute you use them, they simply use up, and eventually they run out. If you plug in the computer, you can go as long as you want. You have an endless supply of electricity. He's saying we're struggling. We, all of us, have derivative life. We're like batteries. God God is the source of life. In Jesus, we're plugged into life itself. No longer derivative. We'll never have to recharge that battery. We don't need a battery. We're charged into life itself. He said that's what you need. The Holy Spirit is the actual spirit, is the breath, the life a living being, he said, you'll have God's own life in you. Last week, we talked about the man born blind. And you know, right before the story of the man born blind, we didn't read it last week, but Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. That's sort of good, except if you're blind. You know, no amount of lights are going to do you any good if you can't see. So he said, we have a problem here. Jesus is the light who's come into the world, but the light won't do us any good if we can't see. Now, something you might not know is in the ancient world, uh, there sometimes they could, people would get better from eye injuries or were partially blind. They could get better. There's some healing sometimes possible. But if you were born blind, you could never fix something that never worked. You can't fix something that's never worked was what they said in the ancient world. The man said it in the story, never since the creation has anyone done that. So Jesus is saying, this is our situation with sin. We've all been born blind. There's plenty of light, we just can't see it. So what does he say we have to do? We say, how do I get that living water? We're going to change analogies now. How can we see the light? And the first thing he did seemed very strange. If you recall, Jesus took some spit, put it on the ground, and made some clay out of it, some mud, and he put it on the, on the man's eyes. Well, what's so strange about that? The man is not healed. He's just a blind man with muddy eyes. OK, uh, nothing has changed. So this is a symbol. What is it a symbol of? He's saying what I'm talking, your condition, this is all of our condition. All of us have spiritually been born in sin, which is blindness. We can't see God. Sin is separating us. He's saying what isn't needed, isn't a healing. We need a whole new creation because where else in the Bible do we talk about God making something out of clay? It's when he makes the first man out of clay. He say, it's, I'm, I'm going to have to recreate those eyes. You're going to be a new creation, not a healed creation a new creature, a new creation. Now, how do we do that? He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to run. There's a pool called Siloam. I want you to wash there, period. That's all he says. But they explain in John's Gospel, the word Siloam means something. And to Greek readers, it wasn't clear, so they even give us the translation. It's that important. It means the pool of the one who sent, of the sent pool. S E N T, Sent out. Now, why is that important? You know, in Matthew's gospel, when Jesus talks about himself, he calls himself the son of man, like 46 times. He calls himself, I'm the son of man this, son of man that. In John's gospel, he does that, but he more often likes to say, I'm the one who's been sent. The Father has sent me. So Jesus you know what you need for healing now, for that new creation of your eyes? You need to wash in the one who's been sent to wash in Christ, that image of baptism, just as the feeding of the 5,000, the image of the Eucharist. And he goes and he washes, and what happens? He sees. It's amazing, he sees. And in the early church, we often refer to baptism as the illumination, which is a way of saying the time when God turned on the lights. I love that, the, God, the time God turned on the lights in my life, the illumination. So he says, this is how we get that Holy Spirit. We need to be a whole new creation, and that happens when we are are washed in the one who's been sent. Which brings us to today. Oh, I should say one more thing here. In that lesson, it was very helpful for people being baptized, because when you're really excited about something, sometimes people don't share your excitement. I was a CPA, and new tax regulations I found thrilling. And amazingly, some other people didn't. Uh, You know, you go to a party and you start talking about the code, and suddenly everybody has to refresh their drinks when they have full glasses. So you're saying, my life has changed. Wow, everyone is going to see this and share my joy, except that's not what happened last week. First of all, everybody who knew him thought there must be some mistake. They're saying, you look like the guy, but it just can't be. People who knew him all their life. Nah, that just can't be. This can't be. It doesn't make sense. I know you. This can't be true. I know you. This can't be true. Then you think the parents would be delighted. Imagine having your child who can't see. You'd think they would really be thrilled, jumping up and down. Oh, no. Jesus had made enemies in bad places. And so the word was out saying good things about Jesus could get you in trouble. And so when they say, well, you, what do you have to say about this? And say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, yeah, we know him. He's our son. But, you know, he's, he's on his own. You know, he lives on his own. Talk to him. Talk about family of origin issues. Okay. <laughs> okay. Then, finally, we have, well, certainly religious people will understand. So they go to the Pharisees. Clearly, these are the profession. They wear the funny clothes. They're the professional religious people. They will certainly get this. Boy, did he call that wrong. You see, to make God's life easier for him, they had actually told him how he was supposed to behave. They gave him directions. Here's what you will do and when you will do it. And since he is healed on the Sabbath, that just did not work. So no one got it. And they're saying, that's going to happen in your baptism, he's saying. You expect people will share this joy. You're going to get a lot of incomprehension. Get with it. That's what's going to happen. But he said, there's good news here. What happened last week is, what did that man keep doing? And this guy had no education. He had been blind from birth. You know, he, just sort of, he is a beggar. Is what happened is he said, I don't know, all these smart people are talking to me. He, said all, he kept saying, all I know is I used to be blind, and now I can see. That's a fact. And he says, just hold on to your experience of God. Don't let anyone talk you out of what you've experienced. And also, there was good news because all this opposition, instead of discouraging the man, actually caused him to grow in his faith. The first time he talked to people, he said, they said, who healed healed you? And he said, some guy called Jesus. Literally, a man called Jesus. That's not the best testimonial. Another paragraph later, he's saying, he's a prophet. And at the end, he's saying, he's the Son of Man, the Messiah, and he worships him. So he's saying, yeah, you're not going to be understood, but you know that your faith is actually going to grow. So those are the lessons we've had in our first three weeks of our four weeks, you know, of John. So today we we get to the passage on the raising of Lazarus. Now, because it's a long passage, we did not read the first few lines of what happened before Jesus got to Bethany. And I love that part of the story, so let me just tell you. First of all, who are Mary and Martha and Lazarus? Well, they're very special people in Jesus' life. For example, if you have an apartment on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, you're gonna have friends from college you never knew were close. Every time people want a place to stay in New York, uh, that's where they're going to go. So what happens is they actually had a great place in Bethany, which is a good suburb. It's only, it's the difference for, distance between here and Glen Ellen. So what a neat place. You come to town, all these people with holidays and stuff, you can't get a room. Because the population would double for the great feasts, so he could always hang out with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. They were good friends. And it's the one place he could just be himself. He didn't have crowds and people trying to trick him. They just people loved him. He loved them. So he's out on a missionary trip, and Lazarus gets really ill, seriously ill. So they say, "Hey, let's send to Jesus." So they send to Jesus, and he gets the message. And what do you suppose he does? It's really shocking. We've told how much Jesus loved Lazarus. He did. But Jesus, uh, you never guess it from how he acts because when he gets the message, he just sort of, he's in no rush at all. He just hangs out another few days. When he gets there, he'll get there. Whoa, and he tells the apostles, he said, well, why aren't you more excited? He said, no, no, you don't get it. This will not end in death. It will not end in death, and it will actually bring glory to God and to the Son. Now, here's what glory means. Glory means when you could show something about you that people, it's amazing. Something you might not suspect, that's the glory. Like, have you ever had a friend or something uh, who you go to a Chinese restaurant or something, and then suddenly he orders in Chinese. You said, whoa, where did that I mean, People look like me or something. And how in the world would you know Chinese, that kind of thing? Wow, I didn't know that about you. He said, you're going to find out something about me. It'll be for the glory of God. You're going to find out something. Okay. Well, two days later, guess what happens? You know, most of us don't like talking about death. We use something we call euphemisms, that we basically use nice words instead of the words that hurt. So we don't like to say somebody died. We like to say they passed away. Now, imagine somebody didn't speak English that well, and you say, uh, they said, hey, how's your, I heard your aunt was sick, how's she doing? And saying, well, she passed away. Oh, great, she's traveling again, where's she going? And you say, you don't get it, that's an idiom, it means she's dead. Well, that's what Jesus does. Jesus says, hey, you know, I got to tell you guys, Lazarus has fallen asleep, and I'll go and wake him up. And that is the regular Jewish idiom for, and by the way, the word cemetery is a Greek word, which means a place where people sleep. That's actually what the word cemetery means in Greek, a place you go to sleep, <laughs> really sleep. Okay, but in any event. Uh, so, we have, uh, so we have him here. Uh, he, he goes off, and uh, Lazarus is falling asleep. And and they said, hey, that's great news. He's going to get well. They literally said that. Hey, this is good news. He's sleeping. He's going to be I said, no, dudes, he's dead. I added the dudes. It's not in the Greek. Okay, guys, (laughs) he's dead. Okay. So, but actually, okay, what Jesus says is going to turn out to be literally true. When Jesus comes, he's going to wake him up. He's going to bring him back. So he comes and meets Martha. Martha comes out to meet him. Uh, And Martha says, first of all, she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother never would have died. And this is like having somebody, I have a a brother who's a a physician. I have a son who's a physician. And I'm saying the thing is, let's suppose we had a family gathering, and one in our family had a heart attack. A lot of us are really old now. Had a heart attack. We said, if you had been able to make Thanksgiving this year, is not a reproach, but that would have been great. He probably would still be alive because you'd know what to do. You know, we just couldn't get help in time. That would have been great. If you'd been here, our brother said, we know you have power. If you had been here, you would have done something. We understand that. Actually, Mary will say the same thing. Lord, if you'd been here, we know he'd never have died. And we understand, like with the doctor, we'd say, son, you're a great doctor, but when people are dead, that's all you can do. That's the boundary. That's, that's your boundary of all we can do. Well, then Martha shows she goes to a whole different place. She said, but even now, this man isn't just dead. He's buried and rotting. If you ever wondered why do they keep talking about Jesus raise, being, raising, being, rising on the third day, in Jewish tradition, corruption of the body officially begins on the fourth day. So Jesus never sees corruption. So the body's rotting. They, when they come to the tomb, they say, we can't open. It's going to smell. I mean, the body's rotting. But she says, even now... I think you have power. Even now I know God will do what you want. That's faith. So what does Jesus say? He says, your brother Lazarus will rise again. Now, how does she respond? She understands it in terms of a profound truth of the Jewish faith. You know, basically, yes, there is a resurrection of the dead. She says, I know that on the last day he will be raised. It's the comfort we offer people when when people uh, pass away. We say, you know, your brother is this is not the end. He will rise again. We say that at funerals, in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection. But Jesus says, No, 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 he's promising more than that. He says, It's true of the resurrection. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. That means. But he goes on and says, all who live and believe in me shall never die at all. So he's saying, I'm not talking about centuries from now. I'm talking about now. Yeah, it's true, the last day, that's true, but I'm talking about something happening to your brother now. And notice the words he says aren't about Lazarus. This is just a sign. Lazarus is just a demonstration. He says, whoever believes in me, he says, All who live and believe me, this is not about Lazarus. Lazarus is a sign. It's a saying, This is true, this is all of our future. Okay, and then Lazarus he has Lazarus comes out of the tomb. And what happens? Remember on Easter when we read all those glorious stories of Jesus' resurrection. What do we always find in the tomb? We always find all those burial cloths. You wrap people in cloths to keep all the spices on the body, you know, to to, when, they're, uh, when they're decomposing, and they're always left behind. We have all the, all the claws are behind, and that's, that uh, veil they put over their faces is behind. What did we see today in Lazarus' resurrection? It was like something out of a mummy movie. The guy walks out like this, and he said, okay, guys, untie him. Why are they emphasizing that unlike Jesus, Lazarus is tied up because Lazarus has been raised, but he still has to face death. He's not free from the bonds of death. He has been raised to a new life, but still, he will have to pass through. Jesus will never have to pass through death again. Lazarus is still bound. Yeah, he came out of the tomb. He's new. He has a new life, but he will pass through death again. So what's the lessons in this passage for me? Well, first of all, we share Martha's great hope. Our hope is the resurrection on the last day, where our bodies, our resurrection bodies, will joy, be joined in our souls forever. That is the great hope. That's why you dress in white for funerals. We're celebrating the sure and certain hope of our resurrection. But what did Jesus, let's hold Jesus accountable for this. Jesus said, all who live and believe in me shall never die at all. What in the world does that mean? I mean, after all, all the apostles are dead and buried. Generations, billions of Christians over the centuries have died and are buried. But Jesus says, all who live and believe in me will never die. I believe Jesus means what he says, so what is he saying? And here's the beautiful part. This is the key to the lesson today. You know, our bishop likes to talk about the church. He do said, the church is not an it. It's not an organization. It's not org charts and buildings and legal, uh, you know, legal bylaws. The church is a she. It's living. It's the bride of Christ. It's living. The church is a she, not an it. Jesus tells us in today's gospel, the resurrection is not an event. It's not an it. It's a he. I am the resurrection. I am the life. That changes everything. Because one of the key themes of of Jesus of the Gospel of John is, you know, the Father and the Son abide in one another. They share a common life. And he invites us to abide in him, right? I, you'll abide in me as I abide. You know, we'll abide in one another. Jesus is saying, if you're abiding in me and I'm life itself, I'm resurrection, that means you're already in the resurrection. If you're abiding in me, you are in life right now, not centuries from now. It has already begun. You are already have started the journey of eternal life right now. So uh, he's changed the whole meaning of physical death. It's no longer about a dead end, pun intended. It's now a transition. It really is like going to sleep in the sense that you really wake up in the morning. You know, the trouble with sleep is a euphemism. No one's waking up. But saying he's saying, no, it really is like that because a Christian is not. Death is simply a transition to, 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 re, to new, renewed life. And we're like Lazarus. We're still bound by physical death, but all of us, like Lazarus in our baptism, have been raised. So we're in a new life. Even though we still face death, it's different. We've been raised from death. Everything has changed for us. Okay, so how do we apply the lesson of this gospel to our life here, and how does that change things for me? I think a lot of us in our Christian life, because we live in hope, which we should do, about Christ's return, our seeing the Lord face to face, it's like being in a high school play or in a college play, uh, or like a, when we have the Easter vigil and the people are working all the things up here for the staging, and all those wonderful things, and you're waiting for it to start, you're sort of hiding, you're about the, court. the curtain hasn't gone up, right? And you're thinking, you're talking to each other, we have to get ready for when the curtain goes up. Jesus said, excuse me, guys, look, see the people out there, the curtain is up right now. It's not like we're waiting for the resurrection of the dead when the curtain goes up. He said the curtain has already gone up right now. You're on. So five things how that changes everything for us, for our Christian life. The first one is, Look at what Jesus said again. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, which those who believed in him were to receive. Jesus says right now, each of us has the very inexhaustible life of God within us. It's not a well we have to draw from. It's already in here. That's what happens when we are baptized, the indwelling presence of God's own life, the Holy Spirit changes everything. The second thing, it's, you know, we look, sometimes people look at Jesus as a great teacher, and he certainly is. However, if you just look at Jesus as a teacher and try to do all the good things, he says, you're going to keep falling all over yourself. It's way beyond us, except I can't do it, but Christ can. So because that Holy Spirit is also called the Spirit of Jesus, So, Paul tells us, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's true for every one of us. By receiving the Holy Spirit, we have Jesus himself ready to do what needs to be done in our lives. He's not saying good luck in life and giving us instructions. He will be there at every stage. Paul says in one of his letters, he says, God is at work in you. He's the one causing you to will and causing you to work. Jesus himself is doing those things in our life. In Ezekiel, he, God says to him, I will put my spirit in you to keep my commandments. So we're not alone. We're not just trying our best. Jesus himself is working through his spirit in our life. Third, let me tell you something about old age, being on the front lines, is, you know, as you get older, it's all downhill. And the says physically and stuff, you know, um, uh, how do you define, you know, people when you're young, you know, they say, hey, you look good. Look, you know, how are you doing? When you're my age, they say, hey, you're still alive. OK. <laughs> Who knew? But in any event, we know I, in the morning I wake up and I look in the mirror and say, who's that old guy? You never get used to it. But we know that our bodies physically decline. That's not true of us in our new life. My favorite verse in all of the scriptures is 2 Corinthians 3.18. It says, as we and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. From this, this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. He said that Holy Spirit in you is actually a fountain of youth. It's renewing you. You know, you're renewed on wings of eagles, it says in the Hebrew Scriptures. You're actually getting younger spiritually. You are being transformed from glory to glory. You're not going downhill, you're going uphill. Instead of like something like me and being old and getting older, you're like an athlete who's training. Every day you train, you're getting stronger. You can run farther. You can lift more. He said, no, you'll be transformed. Fourth, how can I know that this is real for me? You know, some of us as Christians act like our Christian faith is sort of like a job interview. You go there and you say, I certainly hope I've chosen. I hope it works out. I think I did a good interview. But you don't really know. Until you get that call, you're not sure. You're not going to basically start spending the money. OK, we know because God gives us the spirit. We have that swelling. It's the spirit that says, Abba, Father. So we have in Second Corinthians, Paul says, it is God who established us with you in Christ. And he's anointed us. And he has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Now, a seal, if you're unaware, in the ancient world, you showed ownership by putting a seal. It's their version of a barcode to say, this, I own this. So he says, God has actually put a seal on you. That's the Holy Spirit. You, if you doubt who you belong to, look at the, you have the Spirit saying, you're my Father. That means you've been, you're God's. That's the, that's the barcode. You belong to God. At baptism, we put anoint with oil and we say, you know, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. You're marked as God's forever. And finally, we have, how do we know that we're really going rise to from, rise from the dead? You know, I go to a lot of funerals of people because I've been business of things, of people who are not believers. And they have sort of a titanic theology, the movie, where it's sort of, I know his, his heart must go on or something. So we like to think, yeah, I guess in some poetic way. And I say, no, I think he's dead. <laughs> he's not going anywhere is if you have a secular attitude, that's not true. We're talking, how do I really know about this life with God forever? How do I know that's true? Well, this is a beautiful thing. It's another verse I love. Paul says, well, how do you think Jesus rose from the dead? He's truly God and truly man. The man, Jesus Christ, born in Nazareth, could die. He had a body that made him capable mortal. He could die. But being God, God can never die. And since the two are inseparable, the man died, but being God with him, caused him immediately to come back to life. That's the resurrection. And he says, you know, you have exactly the same spirit that raised Jesus is already in you. It's like imagine if somebody said to you, um, you know, we're going to go to Italy this fall. And they say, you guys were always talking about going to Italy. And, and I said, look, I have the tickets on my app. This isn't talk. It's real. Right here, I have the tickets. And that's what he's saying. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the tickets. We already know we'll rise because the Spirit that's raising us is here right now. We have the tickets. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit, which dwells in you. So let's conclude You know what really stops us from being the men and women God made us to be, fully in the image of God? It's the fear of death. That's why we're afraid of missing out. Because we're saying, I only have so much life, I can't afford to make a wrong turn. We're always afraid of missing out because I'm going to die, and I don't want to make some terrible mistake. I lost some opportunity. So Paul says in Hebrew that it's the fear of death that held us in lifelong slavery. But in Galatians, Paul said, you you are set free for freedom, to live in freedom. And that's what we receive in that Holy Spirit. That Holy Spirit is that freedom that we know who we are. We have the the living God within us. This is a very important uh, witness. Uh, Why did a lot of people convert to Christianity in the early church? You would think, well, gee, with such people are being martyred, I don't think it's something I'd want to do. But here's what really amazed people. A lot of us say, yeah, people say those things, and they really want to believe them. But when push comes to shove, you see what people really believe. Well, they were seeing people in the Roman world, you could, you could renounce Christianity at any moment and it all stopped. You could always walk away. And when people died horrific deaths and they didn't walk away, people said, oh my Lord, they actually believe it. They believe this, that was a witness. Okay. Uh, One thing I forgot to mention earlier that's a powerful I want you to understand with this is, you know John the Baptist makes this big deal about, you know, I baptize with water, but that's a baptism of repentance. But I'm telling you, somebody a lot better is coming. He's going to baptize with water but with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Baptism, remember in the Bible, water is the image of death. You know, water is the image of death. So we could say baptism is like a burial. You go down into the water. It's like burying something. We can die to sin. John says, I can do that. I can help you die to sin. But you know what I can't do is I can't bring you up to life. I can do the dying thing, but I can't give you life. Somebody's coming who can not only put sin to death, but he'll raise you up. That's the spirit. So that's the idea. That's the spirit we receive at our baptism. Now, again, if we're having in our spiritual life, when we feel those challenges, all I'd say is this is... um, Jesus says, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Some of us are like people who are dying of thirst next to a fountain. We're saying, you have the Holy Spirit in you to draw on. Take the bucket and put it in. Okay, so let's pray now today for that grace to really draw on those living waters. That's the secret of our life, God living within us to draw on those waters. And you say, well, wait a second. Those waters are not exactly rivers now. They're sort of like little streamlets. There's some rocks that have gotten into my, into my spring. Well, good news is, first of all, in prayer and things, God can remove the water. The water's down there. God can remove the rocks, and the water can start pouring out again. And every time we go to communion, we are renewing our baptism. Well, again, let us give thanks to God who has given us a share right now in eternal life. And let's draw in every aspect of our life upon the Spirit, the God, His living presence within us, His life right now, eternal life. Amen.